Hey everyone, welcome to our third episode of Teams at Work podcast. Uh, my name is Daria and I'm one of the co-founders of Bunch AI and I have Mark with me, um, my co-host Mark Friend, who is um, a strategic advisor at Bunch and um, we have a very exciting guest um, today, Dizzy Smith, who is basically the um, person to go to when you're actually thinking about how to build a successful engineering team, how to scale it. And he's done so in many different companies, many different environments, remote, non-remote. So I'm really, really excited to hear more about Dizzy's story today. And um, Dizzy, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Can't wait to talk about building teams. That's super cool because our listeners definitely are interested in the topic, not only how to actually build the teams, but also, of course, how to make them successful. And as we all know, engineering teams are particular and special, uh, referring to the Snowflakes book. I'm going to link it in the podcast description. Um, yeah, so super, super um, hyped to, to hear more. And um, let's hit it off, I would say. All right, let's do it. Tell us a bit more, maybe at the very beginning, tell us a bit more at, about your current role um, and how big your team is and uh, what does Packet do and what are you responsible for? Sure. Uh, so uh, Packet is a bare metal cloud, um, which is kind of a, a different kind of cloud than, than your normal ones. Uh, what that means is that we just provide uh, direct access to hardware. And this is uh, you know, useful for large enterprises who have like latency sensitive kinds of applications. Um, we also do a lot of stuff around building out data centers and, and sort of edge data centers, if you will, and also helping really large enterprises um, convert sort of their existing investments in data centers into actual clouds that they can use on a regular basis. Um, so uh, we do a lot of sort of different things around that, but that's the gist of it. So it's a very sort of software, hardware, engineering intensive uh, company. Uh, we're pretty small right now. The company as a whole is uh, a little less than 100 people, uh, or actually a little more than 100 people, I, I think, uh, as of a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, I run all of engineering there. So uh, hardware engineering, network engineering, software engineering, like sort of anything around engineering is is within my uh, remit. And uh, I love it. It's a, it's a ton of fun. My team right now is about 40 people, um, and we're growing pretty rapidly. That's super exciting. Um, I think I definitely spoke to our CTO about Packet, and all I got was he's extremely excited about the technological side of things. So I think awesome. you guys are, are building um, really good tech over there. Um, can you remind me whether Packet is distributed or are you guys have a mixed model? Tell me a little bit more about the setup um, of teams that you Yeah, uh, so... Pursue. Yeah, we have an office in New York. Uh, it's, you know, most of the engineering team is not based there, though. I, I think maybe five or six out of out of the 40 uh, are there. Um, but we're, we're pretty much a, a distributed company. Um, we have people sort of all over the world. Uh, I've got people sort of all the way from, you know, uh, Western Europe, across the US, uh, Japan, Indonesia, uh, and India. So it's, you know, we're a very far flung kind of organization. And it, am I correct to assume that kind of like the company is split half-half in terms of engineering and product and the rest of the company is then on the customer acquisition and customer success and support yeah, side? Yeah, I mean, it's a little more than that because there's sort of uh, engineering group and an ops group, uh, which mm -hmm. makes up about two-thirds of the company. And then everything else is all the sales and acquisition and whatnot. Cool. So Got it's, it. uh, yeah, for, for the stuff that we do, it's, you know, because we also operate a lot of stuff, we have to have a pretty significant uh, operating team as well um, that actually does all the racking and stacking and sort of, you know, hooking all the wires up as well as sort of monitoring everything and uh, all that fun stuff. Yeah, sounds uh, logic. And if you think about the combination between hardware and software as well. Um, before we kind of jump into the whole remote topic, which I think is very interesting for Mark, probably especially, and for many of our listeners, since building up remote organizations is definitely um, uh, a big topic and we get a lot of questions mm -hmm. about it currently. Um, just kind of a more high level, but a good, I think, um, first orientation as an engineering lead and also as, a, yeah, um, just a, one of your key kind of decision makers in the organizations. What would you say are kind of the, toughest or most impactful decisions you currently are making? Mm. 
I mean, I, I think the the hardest decisions uh, usually revolve around sort of prioritizing work, right? Like um, you, <laughs> we we have sort of an uh, uh, an infinite level of ambition and things we want to take on. Uh, we definitely do not have infinite resources, so you know, making the decision around well, what's most important. Um, it's actually really difficult because every time you make a decision like that, uh, you're making sort of significant trade-offs. Um, and you know, you don't want to, you don't want to sort of only focus on short-term stuff. You also want to take on long-term stuff and, uh, finding that right balance, uh, requires just a lot of sort of thinking of talking with customers, of talking internally around what's going to, you know, what a different decision would, uh, how it would impact us from our ability to deliver new services and whatnot. So I really, it's around prioritization, uh, is, is where I spend a lot of my time thinking is, is trying to, trying to balance that. I think, you know, there's of course the normal other things that you have to think about sort of around organizational structure, um, about sort of performance management and feedback and all that jazz. Uh, but, but, my day to day is is dominated with with priorities uh, often, and and like that impacts a lot of a lot of teams in the org, right? Like what they work on and what's important. Like it's really important for them to feel like they're having an impact on our future. So clear priorities enable them to do that and uh, make sure that their work is is leveraged as best as possible. Hey, Dizzy. Uh, I mean, as you know. Um, you know, you and I share a, a history of interest in remote teams, and we're, we've just started to talk a little bit about the structure there at Packet. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how um, how you're trying to create a unified sense of culture, both at the company, but also in in your organization, in the engineering organization? And then a, a follow-up that I'll just put in your mind here that you can maybe go into after you answer that first question is, how do you, how do you ensure that those... Um, those folks spread out, as you said, all over the world, literally continue to feel included and involved in, in what you are doing in the engineering organization. Yeah. So I, I guess let's start with the culture one. Um, I think from my perspective, I don't know, <laughs> let me just put it this way. Like this, this might be a little bit of a controversial statement uh, and we can, we can dig into it, but I'm kind of skeptical that culture is something that you create directly. Uh, my experience has been that culture is kind of an emergent property uh, of sort of actions uh, by leadership and by the participants uh, in the organization. And what you can do is you can shape it. Um, and so, you know, I like to think about it as I'm building environments uh, versus building culture. So in other words, I'm creating the framework in which or sort of the trellis uh, on which culture grows uh, might be a, a good analogy. That's great. Um, and so, you know, with that in mind, there's a lot of different ways to to influence that environment and sort of set that environment up. Um, from my perspective, sort of the, some of the things you think about is like making sure people are really connected, uh, that they have clear direction around where you're going and why you're going there. Um, and also making sure that there, you know, there's just sort of, uh, a cadence of, of, of work, uh, and, and life really, right? Like you can't, the other part of this is like, um, you know, computers don't write software. People do. That's one of the, my sayings I like to, to remind myself of. And that is, and, and that means that sort of, as you're creating these environments, you also have to make sure you're sizing it appropriately so that people, uh, have the opportunity to take a breath uh, and don't get burnt out. Um, and that sort of, again, coming back to the direction thing with that clear direction that they have uh, a structure in which to execute against that and an understanding that it's not going to happen overnight. Um, so there's like a lot of stuff that goes into, into creating that environment. Uh, but that's sort of how I think about the problem as a whole. Yeah. And, and that, I, yeah. No, no, it's great. Well, and thank you. We, we love, we love the controversial actually on, on the show, <laughs> um, just like that a radio, just like <laughs> a radio show. Um, and by the way, you have a great radio voice, Dizzy, by the way. Um, the, uh, I, I would, I would say the, what I used to use as a metaphor. So I'm glad you used the trellis metaphor. I used to use the metaphor, um, of a home in that the, uh, the executives, the, the, the best the executives could do was try to architect the house of culture in a way and then be a good be a good host you know so as people mm -hmm. come into it like like you know here's here's the house you're going to live in here's its features here's mm -hmm. here's here's how we get along together in this house but you the experience of someone within that culture is going to be that person's you know alone and there's no way that you can 
control it. And, and in many cases, I think executives who who believe that they can or should actually make some make some mistakes. Um, so I'm, yeah. I love I love your metaphor. Um, but yeah, if you if you wouldn't mind, I mean, in that context, which, which I think is a really wise and smart way to think about your duty as an executive um, for your team, how do you how do you at least help ensure that your team feels engaged in that um, and included? Because I, I'm sh- I'm sure, given given your thoughts on this, that you you know would likely agree that even even though you can only shape the cultural experience, there is a lot you can do as a leader or fail to do to make sure people feel involved and seen and heard and included. So I'd, I'd love to talk about that in the context of having a very far-flung team. Yeah, so so sort of if we take it take it over a little bit into like how how and why do distributed teams work, I think it's going to eventually lead us around to answering that question. So if you don't mind, let's take a bit of a detour onto sort of how I think about how a remote team works. Love it. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then weave it back into how people feel connected. Um, one of the sort of, uh, I actually was, uh, I was doing a, uh, th- there's a, a research publication that's, that's writing up some stuff on remote work. And I had a conversation with them, um, yesterday and we were talking about sort of, there's always a lot of hot takes, uh, on the internet about remote teams, what makes them work. And it's sort of a pet peeve of mine is, you know, when people are like, uh, you know, they stand up and they're like, here's how remote works at company X. And they like run down all the things they do. Uh, to make that remote team work, but they don't actually describe why it works, right? Like it's just sort of like, yeah. So we only use IRC or or whatever, uh, and and um, you know, understanding that, like, why does that work for you is is one of the things that I'm really curious about because what I want to do is I want to actually engineer these, um, you know, engineer these environments, right? I don't. I'm not content, and maybe this is sort of my uh, having been an engineer for 15 years. Like, I'm not really content just to do things and they happen to work. I want to know why they work. Um, so along these lines, I've, I've developed some systems for how I think about remote teams and how they communicate. Um, and, you know, I, I think about it in terms of uh, what I call modalities, right, which is this idea that um, when we communicate, there's different kinds of modalities that for different kinds of communication. And having done a lot of network engineering, I think about it roughly in terms of bandwidth and latency. In other words, bandwidth is how much information you can convey and latency is how long and how timely that information is. So uh, with a framework like this, uh, you know, you can think about like email. Uh, email is sort of a high bandwidth. You can convey sort of really complex thoughts and, and, and whatnot, but it's also very high latency, which means it, ta- it takes a long time to actually write that thing, right? Like uh, writing a good email is not something you just knock out. Um, and so, you know, that's really useful for conveying ideas and getting people aligned. And, you know, I'm still very much, I, I still really find that using email is particularly for connecting people to vision is a really critical tool. But then there's other tools like, you know, Slack, right? Or I am, uh, that's kind of a, uh, a low bandwidth. In other words, if you want to convey something, it's just a lot of typing and a lot of rapid typing for a long period of time. So it's low bandwidth and it's also low latency, right? Which means that you can, you can sort of do a lot of back and forth with someone real quick. Um, but you're, it's, it's hard to have sort of a deep conversation there, right? Uh, from a typing perspective. So that's really great for things like coordination. It's really terrible if you're like discussing, you know, the finer points of an architecture because it doesn't encourage you to sort of slow down and think. Um, I also have some other theories we can go into later around why I think this creates sort of a lot of flame wars and stuff like that. But it's it's low bandwidth, low latency. It's it's great for certain types of tasks. But again, like just like email, it's not great for everything. And you kind of got to know when to switch between the two. And then we get into sort of video conferencing uh, as, as sort of the third modality, which is sort of moderate bandwidth. You can convey, you know, like in this conversation, a, a lot of information and it's low latency. So it's actually kind of great, right? Like it's a nice balance. Um, but I think sort of uh, as you get into sort of the next modality, which is face-to-face, right? Which is sort of high bandwidth, low latency. Like video conferencing and and face to face are very very interesting to me uh, from a psychology and and sort of uh, uh, an emotional perspective because those are the two modalities where you see sort of people's faces uh, and that changes. Uh, it, I mean, we we know sort of uh, from sort of modern modern neurology that that actually uh, kicks in different parts of your brain. It, it actually yeah, activates centers of empathy and all this stuff. And so it's really important to know when to use those modalities as well for communicating. So 
when I think about sort of having laid out all those modalities, when I think about how a team works, um, I encourage sort of uh, the engineering leaders and managers and, 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 and individual contributors to pay attention to what modality they're using and think about, is there a better modality I should be working on? Um, so for instance, if, if you have a, a technical discussion that starts to get real heated in Slack, uh, you know, I've tried to train the managers of, Hey, if you see this happening, it's time to get people on a video conference so that they can see each other's faces and calm down a little bit. Um, so, so it's, that's, that's kind of the, the sort of systematic way that I think about how people communicate on a distributed team, right. Is, is knowing when to use all of these. And of course, face-to-face is, is a part of that sort of spectrum. Um, and we really want to make sure that, uh, people do have time face to face, even in a distributed team, because again, like it activates different parts of our brains. We are more sort of emotionally sensitive and thoughtful, um, and it enables sort of a uh, a gluing together of the team in a way that just using email or just using Slack or just using video conferencing doesn't. Sorry, that's kind of a lengthy answer, but that's that's no, sort of the overall thing. system. Amazing. So just to, to yeah, I agree. I agree. It's really really good to kind of like understand the framework and the the mental model you're using. I think a lot of times, actually, our listeners are interested in not only kind of the best practices or advice, but more importantly, why do uh, particular things work in a particular environment? So just as you said, I think that's a very, um, very natural uh, um, um, way to go for a curious person. Um, what I would be kind of, or what I want to follow up with to drill down on is, how does this work in reality, though? So if I'm, um, let's say, a new joiner um, at Packet and I am just starting on a Monday, what does this look like for me in terms of how do I learn about these kind of norms or the different modalities? How can I understand what makes me successful in this context? So like, how do I actually, um, yeah learn about the norms in a way that I can just get started very quickly and kind of not lose time with like trial and error and understanding um, the kind of the best ways to, to work with other uh, packages. Yeah. I, I mean, some of this, I mean, usually norms, I mean, you can document them of course, but uh, the danger with documenting norms is that that doesn't mean people are going to follow them. Right. <laughs> so this is where, you know, I kind of hinted at this earlier, but this is where setting up sort of the, the structure of communication and the cadence of communications is really important. Um, so, so uh, there, I mean, there's a couple of different things here. One is that first off, uh, hopefully at the, at, at the point, like you're joining the company, like you're joining a team that's, you know, got an engineering manager or engineering director or VP or whatever. That's that, that we have talked about this as a leadership group and, uh, talked about sort of, you know, paying attention to how the conversation is going in Slack. And, and so they start to model these behaviors. That's really the best way in my experience to, to make sure that those norms get passed on is showing, Hey guys, you know, we've our team, we've been talking about this for a while. Uh, how about we, we go to video conference um, and, and sort of vice versa. Uh, you know, uh, you know, look, let's not just all sit on a call and talk about this. Let's just go to Slack. And, and as we figure things out, we'll, we'll sort of uh, correspond there. Um, but I, I think some of it is, is, uh, you know, something that you, that you learn from seeing other people do it. Uh, and it's that practice. Um, what I tell people when they first join the company is that if you ever sort of want to talk, uh, you know, you should, you should always feel comfortable asking for a zoom, uh, asking for that video conference, because like, that's in my mind, that's sort of the, the gateway into starting to think like this is that, you know, email and Slack are pretty intuitive to people at this point. It's that whole idea of sort of switching between uh, sort of making that that quantum leap of, you know, just slacking with someone and then moving into a video chat or and back and forth. So that's the one where I find people usually need the most prodding to, to start thinking about, hey, yeah, I, I can do a video conference. And like, that's not rude or interruptive because I have heard a number of people who transitioned to sort of a remote team. They don't ever want a video conference with anyone because they're like, it's just, I, I just feel like, you know, it's very interruptive to their work. And my response to that is always like, well, you would get up and walk across the room and tap them on the shoulder if you were in the office. And they're like, well, yeah, I, I suppose I would. I'm like, it's the same thing, right? Like people can say, no, I'm busy right now. And that's totally fine. Uh, but, but you do have to think along those lines. I, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. I think it made me also think about the work um, at Google that um, kind of I think is, is uh, easily accessible at the rework blog where 
they're really um, drilling down on these like five success factors of engineering teams and kind of engaged teams, what makes, uh, yeah, what makes an effective team. And I think one of the yeah. factors is all around psychological safety. And what they're basically saying is that one of the behaviors that um, they observed about specifically successful or effective teams uh, was that they actually take much more time in preparing the work and scoping out what needs to be done. And it often seems like they're debating a lot, discussing a lot, and it often seems like almost um, pushing off the actual doing of work. So they spend about 70 to 80% of the time actually aligning on what the best approach would be and only then like about 20% executing. And at first it's counterintuitive because if you would observe that group, you would think, oh, wow, they're like, you know, not getting to the point and not making any decisions and they're like not executing quickly enough. But in the end, they um, actually achieve higher speed rates, but also higher quality of output. And I think that kind of goes into that direction of what you just said. Oftentimes, it's really just we need to communicate much more than we think. Mm. And we specifically when we're remote, we just like execute in a specific direction and then oftentimes find out, oh, wait a minute, I didn't know you're doing this. And like double work, I think, is a good symptom of this, but also kind of like not... Um, different ends not meeting in the proper way. And I think in, in highly collaborative and dependent environments like software uh, development, where you kind of like need to make the ends uh, meet, that this can be very crucial. Yeah, I mean, uh, in my mind, remote teams, uh, sort of if you do a, a, a comparison of sort of a, a remote distributed team, whatever you want to call it, and a, a team that's all face-to-face, um, there's a lot of stuff that you can get away with in a face-to-face environment that you can't get away with in a remote team. Um, in order for a distributed team to, to function well, uh, you have to be really disciplined about sort of your time management, about your scoping, as you were talking about, about making sure that everybody understands here's what we're trying to accomplish. And in a sort of more traditional sort of uh, in-person team, you can often get away with not doing that work. Um, and so what I found is that uh, I I totally agree. Like like the the hard part is not writing the code. The hard part is knowing what code to write. Um, and so distributed teams, because they encourage greater discipline as a whole, I find are often more productive because you're naturally having to make that effort to do the scoping, to do the planning, um, and, and so forth. Because it, it really doesn't work uh, if if you're sort of all remote. Um, so I, I very much agree with that. Uh, it, it still takes work though, right? Like it's still, uh, you still have to teach people how to, how to do that planning and how to think about that, but it happens more naturally is, has been my experience. I loved your example, Dizzy, of, um, of the, you know, the idea of like, when you would just go up and get up and walk over and tap something in the shoulder. One of the things that, um, one of my vice presidents at Envision, um, did as a ritual is she would encourage people to to remember that Slack is also interruptive um, on occasions, right? And so one of the things that she would always do, and I would always laugh and she would always catch me, is the first time in the morning that I would Slack her, she would she would respond, the first thing she would do when responding would be, good like, good morning, Mark, how are you today? Yeah. <laughs> because, and, and, we, and one time we were talking about it and we, we both laughed about it. And it was like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't just get up, walk over, barge in on somebody's office in the middle of their work and like start issuing commands or asking questions. Like you would at least observe some nicety. And I, I love the sensitivity to, we have to remember that these new forms of work um, still need to involve some human relationship factors. And if we forget that all the time, um, it becomes very transactional. I totally agree. And and honestly, I still fall into this trap sometime, right? Like, and this for me sort of personally, again, and, and you'll just find I talk a lot about systems and sort of frameworks for how I think about it. But for me, this comes back to that whole concept of, um, you know, activating those parts of our brains around empathy, like Slack and email, they just don't do it. Um, they're, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to bring some of this up because I, I know Daria has got sort of a really strong background in this much and I'm just a layman, but, but, you know, from what I know, like, uh, you know, we have a part of our brain that does uh, facial recognition, like a significant chunk of our brains dedicated to just dealing with faces and understanding them and, and whatnot. Uh, the fusiform gyrus, if I remember the name of it correctly. Um, and uh, that in turn sort of kicks off all these mirror neurons and and sort of turns on empathy when we're seeing it because like that's actually how we're understanding what people are feeling is we're actually modeling that feeling in our head and then using that to sort of take our next action. 
And the problem with Slack and email and, and heck, Twitter uh, is that you don't see faces. You don't see any of that stuff. And those parts of your brains don't even, uh, or your brain, uh, unless you have two brains, and then that's great. But uh, those parts of your brain don't even sort of activate at all. And as a result, we often come across as sort of, you know, emotionally insensitive or just, you know, completely unempathetic. Um, and that's because that chunk of our brain just isn't even activated, right? Uh, it's, and it's really hard to intentionally activate that without that, that stimuli. And so, like you said, uh, I, I still start from time to time, wake up in the morning, like, oh, no, I got to go deal with this. And I'll message someone like, hey, what's the status on this? Uh, I think I even did it this morning, which is kind of yeah, embarrassing it, now that it, I it, think about me it. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but I mean, it's, it's that whole thing of like, yeah, there are, there are techniques uh, like what your boss or your, the VP was talking about uh, for, um, you know, saying good morning. Uh, and slowing the conversation down, but it requires a you know, sort of a superhuman amount of effort to do that. Um, but those are things that we do need to work towards if we want all of this to work. 100% agree. It's great. Thank you. I would like to um, maybe kind of uh, go two to three steps back, um, Dizzy, and ask you the question I think that we also... Um, discussed at large when we first met, which I find very interesting always. Um, mm -hmm. You've been in the software engineering space, or you've been an engineer for many years. I think 1996 was your, um, I looked it up on LinkedIn, kind of like the start of your first yeah. role as an engineer. Yeah. And I often find it very fascinating when engineers who are the builders and the makers, right, then eventually switch into um, the making and building of teams instead of the mm -hmm. making and building of code or of products. Um, I would love to for our um, audience to hear a bit of your story that actually um, kind of yeah caused you to to join that path and to go for management um, because I think there's many engineers out there that kind of sometimes play with that thought but then also get discouraged and yeah I just would love to hear a little bit more of your personal story and like why did you decide to spend most of your energy and time right now um, helping to build people structures instead of code structures. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so I did engineering sort of software engineering for about 15 years. Uh, you know, I, I love, I love writing code. I still do. I don't get a chance to write a lot of it anymore. Um, and it wasn't until around 2007, was it 2010. Yeah, it was, it was the, the sort of the, the winter of 2009 and going into 2010. Um, you know, I had just joined a company. I was very much of the mind that, like, I just wanted to hack code. Uh, I didn't want to, sorry, I definitely didn't want to manage people because they're non-deterministic and just difficult to work with. Um, that was my take at the time. Anyway, obviously, that's changed a lot since then. But um, I joined this company. I was there for about three months. And then I got diagnosed with uh, a form of sort of incurable lymphoma. And uh, I was stage four. So I did the chemo. I did all these treatments and, and whatnot. But the interesting thing about it is that, you know, when you're, I was 32 at the time, something like that, you know, I, I was still sort of still had that taste of immortality on my lips, right? Like it, it had, you know, I was still pretty young. I wasn't uh, really thinking about, well, what's, you know, what, what mark am I going to leave on the earth? Stuff like that. And so this process of, of going through and dealing with something that's incurable, you know, having a doctor tell you, look, you got 20 years or so, and then, you know, we'll see what happens after that. Uh, really makes you sort of take stock of things. Um, and, and the question that I started to ask myself is, you know, what do I want to do with these 20 years, right? Like, what, what's a good thing? Like, I'm never going to be sort of a John Carmack or a Bill Gates or anything like that. Like, that's, I don't have the drive for that. I don't have necessarily, you know, that's just not me. I'm not that kind of person. And so I started to ask myself, like, okay, well, I can keep writing code, which is deeply personally satisfying, but I feel like I want to do, I want to leave something behind that's, uh, you know, that, that makes the world a little bit better somehow. And so as I took stock of my life up to that point, I realized that the most fulfilling work that I had done had actually been doing some mentoring and coaching of, of sort of, you know, less experienced engineers. And so I was like, well, you know, why don't I try management? Like, let me, let me give that a try and sort of see what happens. Um, 
And so I, you know, after I finished chemo um, and all that stuff, I, you know, at this company, I was like, you know, I, I'd love a chance to try management. And at the time they had four engineers, uh, five, including me. And they're like, okay, well, why don't you manage this team? And, um, you know, over the next 18 months, I grew that team from four to, uh, I think it was about 40 by the time I left. And, and I was running sort of professional services and support and, you know, managing about a hundred people altogether. And I just really enjoyed it. Um, and sort of over the next couple of years, I found that um, I found that sort of my mission evolved from that. And that was, you know, I wanted to create environments where people do the best work of their lives. And I wanted to sort of, you know, that was going to be what I left behind is not sort of the work that I did. But the work of making sure that people have sort of clear direction, that they are able to sort of apply their passion to work uh, and have that aligned and, and so that they can uh, really feel like they're making a difference in the world. And if I could create those kinds of environments where, you know, people felt accepted, where they felt supported, where they felt like they were doing the best work of their lives, I figured that would be a pretty good sort of thing to leave behind because at that point, like, um, you know, I, I feel like they're going to go make the world a much better place in a way that I couldn't have. And so that's kind of what I've, I've dedicated myself to doing. Um, and I, you know, I'm very passionate about it and, 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 you know, it's, it's something that, that, uh, I, I don't know if haunts is the right word, but directs me, uh, every day. Hey, thank you for sharing all that. It's just um, amazing insight into both your character and uh, your personal journey. And I'm, I'm sure well, I, I am moved and I'm, I imagine our listeners will be too. So that's very powerful. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Dizzy. Also from my end, I, I agree with Mark. I think um, it's oftentimes as a founder, you get asked, why do you, why do you do the things you do and why, mm -hmm. what moves you and so on. And I think, um, Somehow people associate that with like entrepreneurial journeys a lot. Uh, but I find it such an interesting and good question to anyone who really intentionally chooses a path. And I think it's really great to, to understand um, the dedication and the deep kind of um, sense of commitment uh, that you also chose. Uh, of course, um, kind of, yeah, given, given the choices you were, you were given, right, by life yeah. and faith. Um, I think it's, it's so great to see... Um, and I'm, I'm glad for many engineers that get to work with you, I think, to see leaders, um, yeah, just authentically very, very driven and committed to um, help others to do their best work, which I think is a beautiful, um, yeah, beautiful reason to go to work every day. Um, I want to kind of stay in this, in this realm and, and ask you maybe another, I don't know, difficult or not question, but definitely one that I hope will, will help our listeners also to further learn from you. Um, could you share with us what you would say currently your biggest challenge is that you're working on and, and how are you, what are the experiments that you're running? How are you tackling it? Um, I'm just trying to think through <laughs> all this stuff that's going on. I, I know, mean, right? I, so I, many, I think like what's the biggest, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, are you talking like sort of on a daily work basis? Are you talking sort of on a, on a personal basis? Like what, what do you think in there? Probably both is interesting, but I want to rephrase uh, my question to be a bit more precise. What is the topic that causes you the most kind of like sleepless nights as a leader? So in the, in the mm. personal slash professional realm, because I also always feel as, as someone who is carrying responsibility, there is no real real separation obviously we take work home in a way that i'm sure you're thinking about the challenges on the people side of things uh beyond the working hours so what is the what's what are the topics that currently kind of keep you up at night but also at the same time just you know this occupying mind space so something that you're trying to resolve and work through and you don't have easy answers to yet yeah i mean yeah. so so it's interesting because because some of the things i feel well let, let me just dive into it the, the thing that keeps me up at night right now is really figuring out like, how do you take an existing organization of people who, you know, all bring sort of different things to the table um, and, and sort of get them to function as a team. Um, and some of that is about sort of coaching and, and guiding and, and giving feedback and, and whatnot. 
some of that's about what additional people do you add to the mix to sort of balance everything out? And then what sort of processes and structure do you put in place that enable them and encourage them to think as a team and not as a set of individuals? Um, this is the stuff that that kind of keeps me up. I think sort of a corollary to that. Yeah. You know, the corollary to that is also how do you do that in an inclusive way uh, so that, you know, you get the best possible sort of mix of people and you don't just wind up with, you know, uh, the same old, same old, which, which is, which is a really difficult problem in and of itself. So that's, that's the stuff that really keeps me <laughs> up at what night. Did you, what would you say? I, I want to uh, dig a bit deeper because I think it's really interesting. And I do think it's probably the kind of theme that we hear often. Um, mm -hmm. What did you try? And maybe you can kind of share a couple of failures with us as well. So what did you think actually would work to align people, even if they're very, very different and very diverse and have cognitive and other diversity? Um, what, do you, what did you try to, to make that work or to kind of tap into their intrinsic motivation and what failed and, and what worked? Well, I mean, what I will say is that the first step is getting a diverse group of people going. Um, and, and you can't, like, you don't even run into problems of having to reconcile uh, different viewpoints until you have a diverse team. And, um, you know, the thing that I've, that I, that's, that's worked for me in the past, um, but is very hard to get bootstrapped is that you bring in sort of a really diverse set of people at the leadership level as high up as possible. And then you sort of turn them loose. And, and what happens is that wherever they go, sort of their, their, their uh, organization naturally becomes more diverse because it's, it's starting at the very top. Um, so from a strategy perspective, it sounds pretty easy. It's like, well, just, you know, get a, get a diverse crew going and then it'll sort of self-sustain, which is true. The problem is, is, is getting that diverse crew going and, and getting them in the door uh, because, you know, nobody wants to be the first person that, that is different in some way from everybody else. Um, the second and third are easier. And uh, to make matters worse, like getting the people uh, who don't look like you uh, in the door is very difficult because of sort of all of our unconscious bias and, and all of our sort of um, sort of cultural problems that we've got. It just brings all that to the top. Um, so, you know, when you, when you do this, when you sort of are in the process of building out this organization, that first, the first, you know, two or three people you bring in that are, that are different, but you want them to be different because they're going to sort of lay the groundwork for a much more, for a much sort of more vibrant organization. Uh, you really have to sort of uh, support them through getting into the organization and getting hooked in and getting, you know, building those bridges and, and so forth. And, and it's a lot of work. And, and sometimes, you know, you wind up having to deal with other parts of your organization and, and sort of dealing with those biases very directly um, so that people can get stuff done. So, so like that's uh, that's how I think about it. I don't think you can build a diverse organization just by hiring, you know, more more engineers um, that are that are diverse because uh, the environments, frankly, that we have in the in the software and you know computer engineering world, if you will, uh, are very toxic, and um, we are literally turning them on their head in a very good way, uh, and it's very hard to do. Um, so if you just bring in people sort of, uh, and expect them to flourish and they're different from any, everyone else, they're going to burn out really quickly. Um, they're going to be very frustrated mm. and they should be. And, you know, that's a very natural and reasonable response. Uh, and that's why like, I like to start sort of from the top and bring in diverse leaders. And then the organization sort of follows that, um, because what happens is that, you know, they're able to attract more diverse people. The more diverse people you have in an organization, the easier it is to attract even more diverse people. And so you wind up with just a really great mix um, of people from different backgrounds and, and viewpoints and all that stuff. And the other part of this is that you start to get better solutions um, mm -hmm. as a whole because, you know, people are not always coming at it from the same viewpoint. Um, not just the same viewpoint, but from the same culture and from sort of like, we're able to sort of question different parameters of our solutions. And that opens up doors that we wouldn't have thought were open. Um, so, so for me, like diversity in the organization is very important, not just 
because it's right and because mm-hmm. it is the sort of moral thing to do, mm-hmm. but also because you can get a better organization out of it um, and a higher performing team. I sign up for that. <laughs> to speak now. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm sure uh, I speak for Mark as well. I think um, at Bunch as well, it's a very big topic and we are constantly striving to um, bring more and more different people in. And of course, it's uh, at times also very challenging. I think the bringing in, you're probably right. We actually, um, I've been surprised how um, not hard it is to actually create a diverse pipeline. Uh, you just have to really kind of explicitly commit to that and actually in the pipeline stage of like looking for people already um, focus on on yeah diverse candidates and not kind of like just go with the flow. Uh, if you're intentional about it, I think you can definitely make that work. But there is definitely also a lot of work to be done in the inclusion part um, where I've one one term that I've heard just recently in another conversation was really interesting. It's um, the kind of... Um, people in the organization that are, I think, called the elegant ironists or so, uh, that basically are the uncomfortable ones, the ones that are raising flags early, right? Like when you bring forward ideas and they kind of see the obstacles and they see the risks very early, um, that oftentimes are specifically in groups that are very execution-oriented, very driven and so on, are kind of like pointed out as the people that are holding back process and so on, Mm. actually have been identified as the ones that like, create the most value add when they're engaged and when they're committed uh, because they point out things early that the group then can tackle and the solutions are just simply better. So I think handling and managing diverse creative process, diverse problem solution process is definitely, I think, a topic that is really, really relevant. And there's many more best practices or kind of lessons learned to be uncovered in the future. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I think we're in the very early stages of it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm at least seeing, uh, from, from what I've seen, I'm starting to see signs that people think about it regularly now. Um, but I, I think there's, you know, there's still a lot of myths floating around and, and like that whole idea, like, well, you know, there, there's no pipeline, like the pipeline's problem. The pipeline's not the problem. There are a ton of people out there uh, from all sorts of backgrounds and ethnicities and genders and all that stuff. There's a ton of people out there. Uh, the problem is that we sort of have systemic bias built into our, into our culture and, it, you know, we don't consider them. But um, and we, you know. and we are sometimes all too eager to excuse the diligence and work required to make that pipeline work for the time to fill, um, open jobs. And it's a real pressure that some people feel, but it also is not a matter of, of, um, it's a matter of moral commitment of an organization. Like, what are we going to do to ensure that we have a diverse organization? And then something that you both mentioned, which I think is is super important, is it is one thing to hire for diversity, is another thing to retain for diversity. And the experience of someone when in an organization um, on how inclusive that organization is to various points of view and personal histories and ways of being is how you'll keep them and can, and keep mm-hmm. them engaged. And I think um, a, a lot of technology companies today are struggling with that retaining for diversity, partly because um, they don't, they're not as thoughtful as they need to be about what kind of environment um, you want to have in a company to allow for that kind of inclusivity for, for diversity of all kinds. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, I, I still sort of believe that it comes back to having a diverse leadership team, right? Like that has to happen because if it doesn't, uh, you know, you're just naturally not going to get get the environment that retains people. Um, and it's, as you said, it's really hard. It is sort of a moral commitment to taking the time to to do your hiring and and being willing that sometimes that means you're going to have to suffer a little bit longer with a with a missing leader somewhere. Um, because you want to not just find the right person, you want to sort of find the, the, the person that's going to sort of take you to the next level from a, uh, you know, from a leadership perspective that, that does have that diverse background. Uh, absolutely. Last but not least, and, and um, thank you so much for all the time you've given us and, and our listeners, Dizzy. It's really, um, truly inspiring to listen to you. Uh, and I mean it. Um, we listen to a lot of leaders <laughs> and I'm always very happy to kind of um, hear stories, but also perspectives that mm-hmm. remind me of why we are 
um, pushing hard, right? And, and all the long hours and kind of the, the fighting for the right things to change. Um, so it's really, really good to, to hear a perspective on that. Maybe as a, on a practical side of things, so kind of um, as, on the, as an advice for some of our listeners, specifically those that are currently in an engineering role and are kind of hesitating or considering maybe to think about a management role in the future, what advice would you give? Like how to make that choice between staying in your expertise and kind of uh, building further your, your deep level expertise in engineering um, and staying in a specialist role versus actually considering leadership and, and a management role for an engineer? Well, I think it's really important and uh, people a lot smarter than I have called this out before, but to remember that, you know, going from engineering into management, it's two different jobs. Like it's a completely different skill set. Um, the analogy I like to use is like, you know, engineering is kind of akin to, to being a scientist, right? Like you start off as a, as a junior scientist at home, you have your little chemistry kit, you mix chemicals and make flares and whatnot. And then one day you go to college and, you know, you're now sort of a, a trained scientist and you're in the, in the laboratory doing serious experiments wearing your white coat. And, and so this is analogous to sort of as an engineer, you become a senior engineer, you're taking on more responsibility. And then one day you sort of, you, you're a scientist and you become a mad scientist, right? Like, like you, you build a layer and, and you plan to take over the world and whatnot. Uh, that's sort of the principal engineer or whatever. Um, and then one day someone comes along to you and says, hey, you know, do you want to go into management? And that's akin to that mad scientist suddenly being promoted to Baker. And you know what? Bakers work with chemistry too. It's just very different kind of chemistry. And it's the same thing with engineering and management, right? Like um, if you're thinking about going into management, that's great. And if you've really sort of got that, that desire to, you know, create those environments to help people build better stuff, you know, to, to sort of lead the charge on, on things, that's fantastic, but you must sort of respect the fact that it is a completely different skill set. And in fact, some of the skills you've learned as an engineer are going to work against you as a manager because you're going to be tempted to dive in and help fix problems directly. And, um, you know, <laughs> uh, you can't do that as a manager because if you do that, you are actually going to hold your team up. Um, another sort of part of this and, uh, you know, is, is to realize that management is interrupt driven work. Whereas engineering or IC work, individual contributor work is flow-driven work. And so if you really enjoy flow-driven work, it is going to be a jarring transition to move into interrupt-driven work because your job as a manager, as a leader, is to make sure that your team can spend as much time in flow state as possible, which means you're going to get bothered a lot by people with questions and you're going to be you know, asked a lot of things that are just very, not a lot of fun uh, as, a, as an engineer, but are essential as a manager. And if you can't, if you feel uncomfortable with, with that kind of work, you probably should not go into management because that is pretty much all that it consists of. So I guess that's how I think about it. And that's how I sort of when I'm working with, with engineers who want to try management out, uh, that's what I tell them. The other part of this, I think, is for those people who are helping people make the transition into management. And for them, I would say, let sorry, don't expect this to be a final decision. In other words, when people move into a, uh, a management role, especially engineers, uh, what I normally do is I say, look, you're going to do this for three months. And at the end of three months, you can decide if you want to keep doing it or you want to move back to IC work. About 80% of the time, people are like, at the end of three months, they're like, oh, please, let me go back and do IC work. But then what the strange thing happens is that if they really enjoyed it, they'll be an IC for about a month, and then they'll start to be like, you know, I kind of miss managing. Like, I, I actually enjoyed it. And what's happened there is that uh, as an individual contributor, you're sort of the feedback cycle uh, for sort of how good or bad your work is. It's very short, right? Like you write a piece of code, it works or it doesn't work. Um, or you're working on a big project and you're making progress or you're not making progress. As a manager, you know, your feedback cycle goes from a couple of days to a couple of months potentially. In other words, it's going to be a couple of months often before you're going to know if a decision was good or bad. And that lack of feedback, that lack of sort of uh, information um, it's, it's like being put in sort of a sensory deprivation tank, right? Like all of a sudden you're not, you don't know if you're doing a good job and that's very disconcerting. And that's why you have to sort of let people, um, uh, you know, try the role out. 
figure out that, uh, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about this and then give them time to process it afterwards. And so I've had a lot of success uh, letting engineers sort of step into management, do it for a couple of months, step back out, step back in and take on longer and longer periods of time until eventually they're like, you know what, this, I love this. I've developed the skills. I understand the feedback cycles. Uh, and, and it turns out that often they actually love it more than engineering. Um, but you have to, you have to ease people into it. So sorry, that's a lengthy answer, but I, I think those are all sort of relevant pieces of it. Definitely, 100%. I think it's probably one of the best answers to this question I ever heard. And I do think it's uh, a very, yeah, very good one. Um, the complexity and kind of deal time delay and the problem solving, I think it's really is, is an enticing argument or an enticing aspect of, of uh, building teams instead of code, right? But it's also like yeah. what makes it so challenging. Totally. Thank you so much, Dizzy. It's been Amazing to have you on the show. And um, I, I learned so much. Again, every time I speak to you, I feel like I'm um, more inspired and a tiny bit wiser, although I'm sure that's just a, uh, a feeling. And I, I definitely need to uh, be a couple of years more in a couple of situations more down the line to really um, be able to, to have, have the same insights as you do. But it's been really, really, really inspiring to listen to you and i wanted to thank you for your openness and your yeah authenticity as well and and the readiness to share um also vulnerable parts of your journey i'm i'm sure our listeners will appreciate it very much and yes i am keep it up and keep it going and i can't wait to hear more updates um on <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> the next on the next steps uh, on your journey yeah thank awesome. you well thank thank you dizzy thank you so much for having me i i really enjoyed it and to everyone who has been listening, I will be sharing, of course, uh, Dizzy's um, LinkedIn profile in the podcast um, description below. Uh, feel free to get in touch with him. I'm sure he will appreciate it. And yes, um, we're really excited to present a next guest who is also very, very interesting in our next show. So stay tuned for that and um, tune in soon again. Thank you. My name is Daria Kutnik, and if you're interested to learn more about team rituals that work for your team, that other successful companies are doing in order to create great cohesive cultures, do check out bunch.ai. This is also where you can find out more about what we're building and sign up for our newsletter and find out what our future episodes will be about. Looking forward to having you and talk to you next on the next episode.